Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. I am Dean Linke, and this is what we have on this week's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Hey, this is Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of the Elite Clubs National League, and I'm excited to welcome Doug Lamont, our coaching methodology advisor and an expert on teaching teachers to this session of Breaking the Line, where we will be following the science and what it says with respect to coaching and teaching players. This is Doug Lamov, the author of Coach's Guide to Teaching, and I'm excited to be on talking all things soccer and football with Christian. And trust me, folks, Doug Lamov talking soccer with Christian Labors is worth a listen all day and every day. And it starts after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. I am Dean Linky. Got a front row seat today as Christian Labors has our first return guest of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Doug Lamov, you should feel really special as you're our first return guest with Christian Labors. With that, Christian, as always, take it away. I'm assuming I'm back. I'm a return guest because I got it wrong the first time, actually. So I'll try, <laughs> try and do it better this time. We are thrilled to have you, Doug. As always, every conversation we have is something that I take away a lot of information and do a lot of reflecting on. So appreciate you being back to talk about a lot of different things in coaching. Specifically, I'll start with you had an article in the LA Times last week about, quote, unquote, following the science in education, specifically with respect to learning loss during the pandemic and what schools and teachers may consider in changing their methodologies of teaching, or at least being aware of some science that may not be clear or clearly followed in current practices. And it struck me that almost all the topics you talked about in that article were really relevant also in coaching. Yeah, uh, I was kind of thinking about the same thing. So I'm happy to happy to chat about some of those ideas. Uh, you know, one of the things I said in the article is that you know, I see following the science as an equity issue, which is, you know, students in the classroom deserve to be taught in a way that's most likely to result in their learning, especially now. And, you know, it's not much different on the soccer field. Uh, kids deserve the best, the best coaching they can get. And so I think when we follow the science, maybe we can get them a little, get a little closer to getting there. Well, I'll just maybe dive in here because I think your article provides a good outline in some ways to the topics that we could go through. So one of the topics that you talked about was background knowledge and the role of background knowledge and learning. So maybe if you can give a little bit of background on that concept yeah. and then translate it into coaching as well. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, background knowledge is so important and it's, it's problem is it, it's that it's not sexy at all. 
And so you can hear people saying all the time, look, what's the purpose of schools? We should be teaching kids to problem solve and engage in higher order thinking and things like that. And so we shouldn't spend time teaching kids facts and telling them things. It should all be, you know, should all be uh, critical thinking. And the problem with that uh, is that critical thinking is impossible without background knowledge, that those things aren't opposites, that one thing causes the other. Uh, you know, Daniel Willingham, uh, the cognitive scientist from the University of Virginia, has a great quote on this. He says, you know, this, this, is, this is a point that is beyond doubt in cognitive science circles that thinking well, critical thinking relies on background knowledge stored in long-term memory where it's accessible without, without putting a load on working memory, which is another thing that we can get into. And so if you want people to do critical thinking, which we obviously want them to do in the soccer field, start with background knowledge, teach them. And, and you know, one of the critical parts of background knowledge, I think it's easily overlooked, is that vocabulary is one of the most important forms of background knowledge. We don't always, don't always think about words as a form of background knowledge. But um, later in the, on the podcast, I actually want to, I have some audio I want to play of, uh, of a training session from a coach who will be familiar to, uh, to you guys. Uh, and one of the best things that the coach does is teach players how to, how to, make a, how to approach another player when you're, when you're pressing them and puts words to it so players can, can call it something and can recognize it and can, uh, and can start to conceptualize it when they see it in other situations and problem solving. That's really interesting. It, it always strikes me how hard it is to get it right in coaching. We're still trying to get it right, even in the classroom. Yeah. Well, it's so true because so many of the ideas come, you know, filter back and forth between the two of them. And so this idea that um, somehow you can just put people in problem solving situations and that they will come to the right conclusions, that they will observe useful things from it um, is, is not necessarily true. I mean, it's partly true because there's a lot of research that experts learn pretty well from, uh, from you know, if you put them in, in a constraints-based situation, in a problem-solving situation. But novices don't. Novices, uh, you know, one of the things we know is that perception is influenced by your background knowledge. So if you know a lot about what you're looking at, you learn a lot from the situation. But if you don't know a lot of what you're looking at, you're looking at random things, you're not attending to the most important signals, and so you're not learning as much. So if we drop players into a really rich constraint-based exercise that is designed to teach them to play wide around pressure, it's likely to teach players who already know a significant amount about, about, playing, about playing wide around pressure, but the players who don't know as much are less likely to learn from that, from that situation. But if you start with a couple of core principles and key ideas and let players conceptualize them and start to use them, then they're likely to learn more from situations like that. So again, I think the takeaway is that like, that's the problem solving, and background knowledge and early investment in background knowledge, those things work together. So if I was going to try and take that directly into a soccer training environment, yeah. one example, it is you can coach anything in an 11 aside because yeah. it, it's the game by definition. It just, it won't happen very often. But the other problem is that whatever the topic or behavior is, uh, will be very difficult for the player to be able to recognize the cue or moment or situation when it's relevant because there's too much other information. So I think what you're saying is sort of this concept that the game is the best teacher needs a heavy modifier of in order to learn from a rich, complex environment like the game, and let's just take an 11 aside, you need to know how to do a lot of other things first 
so that you can decipher information in the moment better. Or even if maybe if I take it even more simple, if you're playing a six versus four, trying to teach a back four how to do something, you can probably let the back four problem solve when they're more experienced and experts where they will be able to recognize things that go right, things that go wrong, various cues. But if you're dealing with younger players who maybe don't know how two players work together in defending, for example, or how one player should pressure, you're not going to be very successful with something that looks very game-like but the players don't have the information to make the right decision in that exercise. Many of their decisions that they make will be wrong. They won't recognize the difference between right decisions and wrong decisions in many many cases. And if they get them right, they won't really understand what's right about them and what to call them. So they'll struggle to replicate a successful decision. And that's, you know, I just think that's why background knowledge is so important. I was just thinking as you were talking about watching uh, my daughter's soccer tournament back in the spring, and the coach is the outside back is way out of position, right? She's way too wide. And the coach is yelling, stay connected, stay connected. At her, right? And I'm hundred percent sure from watching her behavior that she had no idea what the phrase stay connected meant. Uh, and so, right. She's, cause she doesn't understand what, what this, what spacing should look like in the back four. Right. So it's really unfair to her to be shouting that at her in the moment, because, you know, it's asking her to solve this riddle of what does it mean to stay connected, connected to whom and what, you know, how connected, what, what, how far am I supposed to be from the center back? And so, you know, she failed to adjust her, uh, adjust her positioning successfully at all. And the result was, you know, eventually a goal for the other team. These concepts here that you're talking about, I think are, I think complicated is the right word because of the level of nuance that goes into teaching. But it seems that very much baked into this is this difference of novices and experts in learning. And if I tie that to, to coaching, it is maybe the difference between more direct instruction and more guided discovery. And I think, you know, right now it's all the rage that, you know, players figure out problems and make their own decisions and direct instruction has probably uh, it's not as popular as it was years ago. And I, it, it's, it's always scary when you use terms like popular when it comes to things like cognitive science and teaching, I would think. Yeah, so true. Um, so maybe you can talk about direct instruction versus this guided discovery or constraints-based coaching, specifically with respect to novices and experts. Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. So, you know, I think that um, direct instruction gets a really bad name in part because when people describe it, they describe a Frankenstein version of it, but actually direct instruction is, uh, it's okay to tell players what to do sometimes and to explain to them what they would want to do and why. You don't want to tell them for half an hour, but you can tell them really useful things in a minute or two. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be passive for students. You can then ask them questions about it. So um, uh, last week I was actually working with um, the national, the national rugby team from uh, from another country. I was over there uh, doing some training and we were talking about engaging players intellectually during training. Uh, and they're trying to do a lot of like what I've described as discovery-based questions, but they really had very specific, they had a specific game model that they wanted players to play. And so one of the things we we're working on was give a direction. We want to be more compact here. And then you can ask questions about it. Why? Why do we want to be compact here? Or what's challenging? What's going to make it hard for us to be compact here? Or um, what will be if we're able to be compact? What will that allow us to do? And so those are all relatively directed environments where we're telling players what we want them to do. It doesn't mean it has to be a passive learning experience where players are just standing there listening to coaches yammer on. 
uh, but it's steering them to the to understand and pay attention to the important variables that in their decision making. And again, you know, the research is really clear that for novices, this is the way to help that they will understand more of what they're looking at if we spend a little bit of time teaching them some uh, this background information. And actually, if you're okay with it, I would love to show you to play for you two examples from uh, if if this doesn't if this isn't too embarrassing for you, Christian, from your I, I taped you coaching uh, your U16, U17 girls last week. I think two of the stoppages are really, really good examples of how background knowledge can help players. So if you're comfortable, could, could, I, could I play them for you? And one, I'd love to hear what you hear in them first, but then I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that I think are important. Uh, absolutely. I'm going I'm to hate hearing my own voice, as I think everybody does. But go Oh, on. yeah. Then, uh, you know, you never get over the nightmare of being video, uh, videotaped. But uh, so let me just set the stage here. Um, this is two stoppages that I've spliced together from your session, Christian. It's a defensive session. You're working on uh, working with the girls on the defensive principle of force the opposition wide and keep them there. And so the first thing you say is like, what's the first principle of defending force them wide and keep them there? And then this is your this is your conversation with them over two stoppages. Once you realize you're not going to win the ball, the first thing you have to do over the first line is do what? You got to occupy the middle of the field. Take away the space you don't want them to play into. So if you are wide, your body is up wide. If you're wide, you're inviting the middle. So we get into the middle immediately. Then what? Huh? Somebody has to press. Who's going to press? Closest player with the ball. We have two that are pretty close. Who makes more sense to press? And what do we think about here? So if we want to force wide, we want to keep them away from our goal. She comes at this angle. All right, what's your adjustment then? All right, cool. So the first thing is, occupy the middle, then we have to figure out who's going to press and who's going to go at an angle to keep alive. Occupy the middle, and then think about the angle of the press so that we keep it the way we want. Play. So that's the first stoppage. Uh, let me just play the second one here. We can talk about them both. And regardless of where the pressure is, high or low, it starts the same way. It is not straight at the ball. What is the first step? First step is to the side. To the side. So I'm coming at her off of her shoulder. That alone, one step, makes the game more predictable, makes her more reluctant to go this way. It is not the big loop that takes forever and opens up all this box. And it is not the straight line that doesn't take away a direction. It is one step and then come at a shoulder. As that's happening now, first priority in defense is what? Force wide, keep it there. The way we do that is put our body where we don't want them. Where do we not want the ball now? She's pressing. Okay, so somebody needs to now step into the space that we left. I don't want you coming here. I'm going to take this away. Where do you want her to go? So are you going to go mark it early? No. Now you're ready. You're ready to go. But if you go early and anticipate, we're inviting that. So you're saying, hey, I'm waiting. I'm waiting as she goes. And as she tightens, you can tighten up. You need it. As soon as the ball's gone, now it's your turn to close and keep it here. But it all goes back to the same principle. Start with the compactness, shape the pressure, and the cover can shape appropriately. Play. So I'd uh, love to hear what you hear just when you hear those two stoppages. You know, I hear myself, certainly I've repeated things. 
you know, it's always a question of how often do you need to say something for the message to be heard? You know, one of the common themes in, in leadership is, you know, whenever you think you've communicated enough, you're probably halfway there. So one question is, you know, when I hear that, is it too much repeating the similar instruction? Mm. Um, to me, it seems really clear, but that's easy for me to say in, in the sense, because I know what, what I wanted. So I guess I'd, I'd flip that question back to you. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I was struck by, particularly I was thinking about the, the second stoppage, where you're talking to the girls about like, what is the angle you take when you press a ball? I just think about, and how does it relate to what I'm trying to accomplish here, which is I'm trying to protect the middle of the field, right? And you say, you don't run right at her and you don't make a big looping run. You take one step to the side you want to protect and then you approach her shoulder. And I just think about the number of like the percentage of times where players are pressing the opposition and they have no idea about how many iterations would it take a player to figure out the subtlety, the, the details that you just shared with your players about what it means to, to press? I think somehow the notion that like this is taking away problem solving from players is hugely erroneous. That think of how much problem solving there remains to be done. Like right after this, you're like, play, go. And they're in a really challenging, it's a really like high pressure four on four where they have to protect the middle against their teammates. How many complex iterations of figuring out how to do it in different situations, right? Who's going to press first? When, when do I press? At what pace? What, when do I recognize the cues? There's a ton of problem solving and decision-making to go here for, for players. But without this guidance, this background knowledge of like, what, is my, what does my approach look like when I'm pressing the opposition? For the most part, players are going to get it wrong. And I, you know, I guarantee if you walk out to most U16, U17 training sessions, or games, you're going to see players who have no idea how to, how to press, certainly not how to press in coordination, which you're also talking about here, which is to the second player, once she's pressing, how do you, how do you time your run? And so I think that, um, I just think this is a great example of, of the gift of knowledge, right? This doesn't prevent problem solving from players. It allows them to problem solve together around a shared goal. The principle that you've shared with them is what are we trying to do? We're trying to protect the middle, we're trying to protect space we're trying to force them wide and keep them there yeah i suppose what that makes me think about is you know and I, and I say this relatively frequently is that the instruction of the what we want to happen is not complicated the process of doing it quickly and repeatedly is exceptionally difficult so what is not hard doing it and doing it in a chaotic environment and not forgetting or not, you know, missing it, the opportunity completely is, is really where the challenge comes. Pep Guardiola's principles of play are really simple and you can list them on one page. The challenge is doing it against Jurgen Klopp's team, you know, doing it in, you know, under complex circumstances with changing defense with, uh, you know, uh, in a coordinated way that, uh, you know, the challenge is in the application. I just think the notion, which is so, sort of romanticized out there, which is that somehow if we put players in the perfect environment, they're, they're going to infer all of these things, that the answers are somehow inside of them already, that these players, as they're running around, they understand the angle that you should take in approaching the opposition when you're pressing, and that if we just put them in enough situations and ask them enough questions, it will emerge from each of them. I just don't think that's very real. It's, it, it's, it's a myth, right? Like, And if it is, it's going to take you, you know, 30 weeks to get there, why not just tell them and then let them and then ask them questions about why and how and when, which you're also doing here, and let them 
then start playing right away and wrestle with this idea. The other beautiful thing about this session is that like, basically there are two ideas in the session, which is organize, get central, protect the middle, and then coordinate your press and the angle at which you press. And they spend an hour with their attention focused on, focused solely on these two aspects of playing. And you can literally see them improving in the course of the session because they start with a shared understanding of what they're trying to do and how to do it. And then you can see them working together to figure out the coordination of it. We're here on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Christian Lavers, the president and CEO, our return guest, Doug Lamob, who also brought in some fascinating video of our special host, Christian Lavers. We'll take a break. Be back with more Christian and Doug after this. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. ECNL President and CEO Christian Labors with a special visit with Doug Lamar. So Doug, I wanted to, to jump on something you had just mentioned before on this session and you know, of which we were I was kind of the guinea pig. And this is based on a lot of learning from you actually and, and some of your writing. I as a coach have tried to spend more time focused on less topics. Yeah. Um, with respect to hopefully focusing the attention of the players on those things. And I'm very mindful of your, I think you used the example once of the coaches, five stoppages on five different topics isn't going to get you very far compared yeah. to five stoppage on one topic. But that also begs the question of, and then, then there's a connection here with performance and learning, right? And I think you've written a lot on the difference between performance and learning of how long do you spend on yeah. how many topics before that horse is dead. We've kicked it enough, you know, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so first of all, I think cognitive scientists would say something about what learning is. Their definition of learning is actually really, really challenging in a way that I almost might describe as disappointing, <laughs> which is, you know, like Paul Kirshner, who's this very eminent cognitive scientist, defines learning as a change in long-term memory, right? That's what we're trying to do when we're out there. That seems really disappointing to us, but in fact, you know, if you think about things and you wrestle with ideas and you don't remember them, has any learning occurred? I think about this all the time, like the books that I read that I remember loving the books, but I can't tell you a thing about them, or maybe I can tell you some vague thing about them. Unless something changes in long-term memory, nothing's been learned. And so what has to happen to change, for something to change into long-term memory? Well, first of all, something has to get into long-term memory in the first place. And you're absolutely right, which is attention, what players are thinking about what they're focused on is what they learn. And so a training session, like the one that you ran, where uh, you're constantly reminding players to focus on their position uh, in the center of the field and the angle at which they press, makes it more likely that the knowledge that we want about, about defending will be in long-term memory. But then the second challenge is getting it out of long-term memory. For knowledge to be useful to us, it has to, has to come out of long-term memory at an instant 
when we perceive a stimulus, uh, some stimulus or factor in the world in the world around us, it says, "Oh, now's the time to press." Right? We see a cue, and that has to trigger something in long-term memory that we know. Uh, we have to do that very, very quickly. And so the speed and the fluidity which with, we, with which we bring knowledge out of long-term memory is profoundly important. And that requires retrieval practice, which is revisiting things after we've begun to forget them. And that is a def, that is a distinction or the, the, the thing that distinguishes performance from learning. Performance is at the end of this session, I guarantee you the last, the last round, uh, your girls are gonna be fantastic at present, uh, um, protecting the middle and angling their pressure, right? I could see it in this session, but what will happen in the match a week later, two weeks later, will they remember? Well, the facts of human, con of human cognition are pretty clear. Like they will begin to forget. As soon as they're walking to their cars, they've already forgotten a significant amount of it. And then they get home and they talk to their parents and they watch something on TV and they start studying for their homework. And the next day they take a test and they, they've already forgotten so much of what you've taught them. And so, we need to recognize that in order for it to be in stored in long-term memory, we have to then come back to it the next day and then two days later. And uh, you know, a, a, another great phrase from a cognitive scientist, the best time to remember something is when you've begun to forget it, but the struggle to remember it causes it to encode more deeply in long-term memory. What's the total number of times you have to come back to something to encode it in long-term memory? No one really knows. Um, it's probably a minimum of three, uh, if you believe Graham Nuttall, who's an educational researcher, but it's probably more, more than that. And so I have to remember that even the, even the perfect session will not result in long-term player memory, which is, uh, in, which is another way of saying things will transfer to the game. So I've got to cycle back to things periodically. One of the great things about cycling back to things, doing retrieval practice, remembering them after, recalling what we did on previous sessions after players have begun to forget it, is that the amount of time you spend recalling it does not necessarily correlate to the power you get from retrieving it. In other words, after you've done this great session, you could probably spend five minutes on it in three or four subsequent sessions, maybe a day, you know, maybe next week, then maybe later that week, and then maybe two weeks later, and that would begin to instill this idea in long-term memory. So the players could access it and then uh, then it would start to come out in game situations so the difference between performance i'm able to do it while i'm learning or while i'm in a training situation and learning which is i have it with me forever and it will show up in game situations is retrieval practice which we are very you know i can only speak for the classroom but people who are they it feels like a low cognition activity to be reviewing things that we've talked about but it's actually the key to performance so if I can maybe summarize some of this, because I think this was at a really interesting point with respect to retrieval practice, if you can leverage the, let's just call it the initial session where maybe the, the concept is introduced, the behavior, the decision, whatever it may be, that initial session may have a greater amount of time spent on it or a, a greater amount of time spent on a smaller number of different pieces of information relevant to that. You can actually leverage that session with much shorter reminder or retrieval sessions later. So if I put an hour into this topic on day one and then 20 minutes on day seven and 10 minutes on day 12, and I'm making that up, whatever training number, we actually, a little bit of retrieval practice leverages that first session to be really, really impactful. But the failure to do any retrieval practice can almost make that first session, I don't wanna say irrelevant, but it yeah. can make it really, really reduce the, the value of it. Well, that's the irony of it, which is it's so, in a, it, 
it's such an efficient tool, which is if we spend that little bit of time reviewing it, coming back to it later, uh, we don't lose that session. If we do lose a session, right, we have to go back and teach it all over again. And that's, you know, then the cost is huge. And so uh, just investing in memory is actually a really efficient way so that we're not on this treadmill of like, I thought I explained pressing to you guys, so I have to go back through pressing again. Because again, if, it, if, it's, if it's not reviewed, players will forget it. One just interesting takeaway from this, I have a colleague who works with an NBA team uh, and he shared this sort of, you know, we have a presentation and retrieval practice that we do. And the first thing that the NBA team did was they put on the whiteboard in their sort of coach's room, a list of everything that they had covered in practice, you know, so far during their, uh, their preseason and the beginning of the season. And before they walked out to practice, they would just write down a few of them that they were going to review briefly for five minutes, right before a water break, right? Like, great, let's go by, let's freeze. In two minutes, water break. First, we're building out of the back. Uh, goalkeeper, play. Uh, you're going to play the ball out. We're going to, you know, we're building out of the back. Three iterations, players remember it. They struggle. They struggle at first to remember it. Then they start to get it. Then you go back to your water break and you come back to your primary activity for the session. And you've achieved that retrieval practice goal. For those people looking for nuggets of gold, this seems to be one that it's not covered in, in any coaching classes that I'm aware of that are through your typical licensing program. But the ability of retrieval practice to leverage and amplify what is taught to make it turn into long-term learning, and then the failure to do retrieval practice, almost eliminating value long-term of a session is yeah. to me a little nugget of gold that everybody here listening to this, and I, I would hope it would become really, really clear that if we do a topic that we think is important, yeah. just plan ahead that you need to revisit it a couple times in the next four to six week period, and you will see incredible improvement in your players. Two tiny takeaways from that. I agree with every, your, your summary is much better than what I said. One, it means that our unit of planning should be four to six week units, just like you described, which is as opposed to like so many times we plan in one week intervals because we're planning for next Saturday's game. But if we do that, we're always planning for things that our players will forget and will always be on this treadmill. And the other thing I think to think about is, is the implications for relationships, which is when you teach things, but you don't reteach them and you don't revisit them and players forget them. The first thing that happens is you blame the athletes and you find yourself at halftime saying, guys, we talked about protecting the center of the field and the angle of our pressing. Where is it? I don't see it. Or, you know, and your assumption is that like, they're not listening. They don't care. They're not motivated. You know, kids today don't give a damn. And the problem is actually that they're human and that they forget things. But when we forget to do that step, one of the first things that happens is this sort of recrimination, which is I taught you, why aren't you doing it? And there's a big difference between our teaching it and their learning it. And, and the biggest gap is around that recording. I'll tie back to something you had said earlier and talked about with the difference between direct instruction and, and yeah. guided discovery or problem solving. Ultimately, I think these, these are all kind of tied together in some sense, because that initial session may be a lot of direct instruction. Here's what yes. we want to do. Here's why we want to do this generally. And then the problem solving or the discovery piece is how do they do the what? I'll say that phrase again, because I think it sounds weird, but how they do the what is really where the challenge comes. And in order to do that effectively, you know, to your point, that's where they have to really know what to look at and when to look for it in order to accomplish what they were taught in direct instruction. You make such a good point there, which is like, because we're talking about memory work, your first assumption might be that retrieval practice is simplistic. And I'm going to be like, what is the angle of approach? But actually the retrieval practice can be, we're going to play 4v4 here. We're going to play 6v6 here. Our goal is to protect the middle. I want to see you focusing on 
angle, you know, angle of pressing and organization of space in the middle of the field, right? And so the retrieval practice can actually be, can be complex. It can be challenging. It can even be more complex than the original lesson, which is now, now we're going to, we're going to make it harder because it's going to be five before six before, and you're going to have to really adapt what you know about pressing and protecting space to a much more challenging situation. Go, right? So um, just because it's retrieval practice doesn't mean, you know, it has to be a simplistic activity. That to me seems to be a place where maybe you see a little bit of the art come into the science is how fast do you escalate complexity yeah. or how quickly do you make the game more difficult or more real from what has been simplified? Yeah, this is a fascinating question, which I, to which I don't think the answer is clearly known, but Daniel Wilhelm, the cognitive scientist says, cognitive uh, psychologist says, memory is built when built best when you struggle to remember something, but you remember it successfully. So it shouldn't be so easy that you don't struggle to do it, but in most cases it should result in success and it results in, in, there has to be some failure, right? But if it results in too much failure, then learning doesn't happen. And so the question is like, what's the right failure rate and success rate? I don't really know, but I do know that at least like one, you know, one professional team that I was working with, you know, it's either you know, their target is somewhere around 70, 75% successful iterations and a quarter of unsuccessful iterations. Because another like sort of psycho, the psychosocial is always with us. Uh, people are motivated when they feel like they have a challenging, interesting problem that's not simplistic to solve, but that they have a good chance of solving it, right? If, it's, if it doesn't feel solvable, people get frustrated and they start to give up and they feel like, oh, it's a waste of time. And if it's too simplistic, they're like, oh, this is a waste of my time. And so we want people to, people are more motivated for training and they're more involved in training and more engaged if it's challenging and success is likely or not assured. That makes me uh, think of another topic here that is also in vogue to debate, which is this concept of unopposed training or technical training versus training involving decision-making. You have opinions all over the map on it, but it's become also very popular for people to dismiss any type of technical training as you know, lacking context. And so I'll tie this back into your concepts of background knowledge and all this other stuff that we've just talked about and maybe throw that to you on how do you combine these two different types of training that it seems each have value in different ways? Yeah, I think unopposed training is not sufficient. It can never be sufficient to prepare you for the game, but that doesn't mean I throw it out entirely. I think it has, uh, it has specific benefits. And there are two things that I'd say about it. One is um, Hicks law is this scientific principle that says the speed of decision-making varies and according to how, and according to the number of choices available. So if there are more choices available to you, if you have 12 choices, if, you, if, uh, if there are 12 choices available to you, your decision-making will be slower than if you have two choices. So one of the things that unopposed pattern play does is essentially familiarizes players with a set of common choices to play out of like pressure situ or common situations. So you don't always use them. You know, it's important for there to be variations, but what it does is allow players to, when they're under pressure and when speed of decision-making is especially important to conceptualize basically a finite menu of potential options that they could use. It's a bit like if I want players to be able to make decisions with the ball, they have to be fluid at their skills, right? If I, if I have to think about the skills that I want to use, uh, you know, just you know, my, my, uh, you know, my ball work, it's going to use my working memory in the moment when I need my working memory for perception and decision-making around me. And so if my skills aren't automated, I won't be able to think and I won't be able to problem solve. And a lot of times what I think coaches, like when I watch Pep Guardiola 
do uh, unopposed pattern work, which he does. What I think he's doing is the equivalent of groups of group automatizational skills, where he wants his players to be able to execute certain functions so quickly, so automatically under pressure that they can focus their thinking on perception, right? What, what is the move I want to make here? And so, uh, you know, I think it's a little bit like the equivalent of, of, of being automatic with your skills is automatically sort of group coordinated actions, which I, I'm always going to apply and adapt to the situation. Do I think being able to do it in a passing pattern prepares you for the game? Of course not. Then you have to go from there into, in, into challenging or pose situations. But I think you can learn, the, you can instill the sort of conceptual, the model, the mental model of what the basic movement among a group of people looks like through passing patterns in a way that's fairly productive. And I think that's why you see so many highly successful coaches still use it. If our listeners are like me, their brains are going to hurt as this podcast continues because of the, the quality of this discussion. But let's give everybody a break. Take one more break here before we come back and keep digging into the depth of, of knowledge here of, of Doug Lamont. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, Christian Labors and Doug Lamar. So Doug, let's jump into this one because this is a, something I think that every coach or certainly a lot of parents hear this concept of different learning styles for different people. It's one that when first heard has some attraction to it, but yeah. the science is not there on every player or every person having a different learning style or a different method of delivery that is perfectly matched to their brain. Maybe talk about that myth, why that myth might exist and instead how we can think about impacting learning better. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for doing some of the dirty work for me because I'm, <laughs> I'm calling it a myth. You know, I, I think um, there is no evidence whatsoever for the concept of learning styles. And yet, it's a, re it's, uh, it's a really pervasive myth. You know, it's an idea that stays with people. And I think it's worth asking, why is this idea so compelling? And I think the, the idea is compelling because there are certainly channels through which we receive information. Right? You, receive, you perceive information about the world visually, auditorily, uh, tact, you know, through, uh, tactile sources. Um, and so much of it is visual that uh, you know, we have to, like you know, one of the most important things to do with players is develop their ability to perceive the game. It's uh, you know, maybe the greatest single influence on their decision-making. And so I think because we're in some, we're aware of how much we learn through different channels that we, you know, we're, we're, we're inclined to sort of say, oh, well, I learned best this way. 
But for the most part, you have to be able to learn through all channels. And for the most part, you can't choose the channel that you take in information from. Uh, so whether or not it's true that you're an auditory learner or you're a visual learner, I mean, I think it's interesting that most people, when they talk about their learning style, you know, very few people say, oh, I'm a tactile learner. You know, most people say I'm a visual learner when they talk about it because of the 11 million, uh, you know, sensory cells in your brain, 10 million of them are visual, uh, are visual sensor, you know, are, 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 sen are sensory cells that for us processing visual information. So really it's a reminder of how important visual perception and other forms of perception are in decision-making. But you can't dictate uh, as a learner, whether in the classroom or on the soccer field, which channel you would like to use at any given, at a, any given moment, right? The moment demands of you you have to perceive the approach of the you have to perceive the approach of the ball or the position of the defense. You have to use your trailing arm to uh, to sense where the defender is. You have to listen for the sound for how hard the ball is struck to react to it. Right. So, the notion that we get to choose first of all, there's no data behind it, but it's actually I think in many cases destructive to to learners to tell them that they get to choose. The situation demands, and you have to be proficient at gathering perceptive information through as many channels as you can. And really the challenge of learning is, is to shift and prioritize your attention to the most useful channel at any given moment, right? So um, what I'm paying attention to, one of the things we know about the sensory world is there's so much information coming, us, coming at us through our senses at any given time, that the most important, that I have to prioritize something. And so the important question for our learners is which sensory channel am I gonna prioritize at any given moment? So that's why, to me, like there's this huge potential for developing players by helping them to use all forms of perception, but particularly visual perception more effectively. That lots of times we're at a stoppage and we say, pause, guys, what should we do here? And a much better question in many cases is pause, what do you see here? Because if I direct players' eyes to read, oh, there's pressure in the middle of the field and we just play back into it, then they will have learned the visual cue that should tell them what to do and what's and what solutions to think about this may be tangential but it reminds me of a, a quote and I, I can't remember the source but sort of said that lecture is the most effective way of getting information from the lecturer's mouth to the student's paper without touching their brain um, <laughs> and and again I, I wish i could give the the source because but i don't remember it but what you just made me think about when we talk about learning styles in this, and you said nobody says I'm a tactile learner. I think very few people actually also say, oh, I'm an auditory learner. You yeah, know, it's true. Most, almost everybody goes back to visual. And maybe it's a false distinction between I saw I saw a chart versus, you know, I didn't or something like that. But to me, it, it, it also ties back into a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier when we're talking about direct instruction versus questioning. We're talking about the amount of complexity within the environment and the number of choices in the environment. And that really the, the art of teaching or coaching is managing all of those different methods and all of those different vehicles of conveying information and engaging the listener in a way that gets the brain involved. Maybe that sounds a little bit too 20,000 feet, but it jumped in my head. No, I think it's really profound, which is, you know, we're inclined as, as humans to want to say, this is the, this is the best thing. This is the solution. This is the magic, this is the magic bullet. But in fact, in almost every case, the answer is, you know, uh, as I think I quote you saying in, in the coach's guide to teaching, it depends, right? Is discovery learning or direct instruction better? It depends, depends on how much background knowledge 
your players have and how much context they have for the thing you're trying to teach. Is it better to tell players things or to ask them questions? You know, it depends. Um, you know, it, uh, I just think it's um, you know, so much of the discourse around teaching methods assumes that there's one method that's always correct. And I think really the challenge is um, being intentional about thinking about what, what it is I'm trying to teach and focusing on the limited number of things I'm trying to teach and then, and then choosing the methods that help me get there best. One more sort of related topic I think that comes to mind in this is the assumption that learners are aware and, and can feel mm -hmm. when they're learning. It makes me think back to actually early on in my coaching career, uh, and I think it was Anson had said something in a coaching course somewhere that the session that goes really perfectly and looks really pretty doesn't probably result in a lot of growth and learning versus a session that's messy. But I'll, I'll go back to you and, and say, is it accurate that learners are aware and know when they're learning? Or is that another variable here that, that yeah. makes this so difficult? I think the research is pretty clear that learners are not aware of when they're learning, right? They might think they learn more from a session, but they're not, they're not particularly accurate in making assumptions about it, which I think is interesting because lots of people will say, oh, you should let, you should let the learners decide how they, want to, how they want to learn something, you know, great judges of their own learning, but actually they're not. And I think the other point that you make is really important, which is lots of times what we're, when we think that we're being successful, we're training players to be successful at practice, at the exercises we do in practice, as opposed to the things that the game will demand of them. And I think we have to think about carefully about the difference between those two things. You know, a great example of this is, um, is, is the, just the science on blocked practice, which is serial and random practice, which is blocked practice is I do the same exercise over and over again, and it's predictable to learners, and so they know what's going to happen. So we work on um, we work on something for you know thirty minutes without break. By the end of that thirty minutes, I'm going to be people are going to be really really good at doing that exercise, that whatever skill that is. But the um, the problem is that uh, there's not that much struggle in it, and uh, there isn't enough what cognitive science is called desirable difficulty, which is like struggle and challenge, which encodes more deeply in memory and so players are more likely to forget more of it but if i do a few minutes of one thing and go go to a new topic and then come back to the original idea when i come back to the original idea players will struggle to execute it because they won't remember everything about it whether it's building out of the back or doing a Christ turn right uh, and so um, they will feel less successful but it will cause more transfer in the long run because they'll make they will make more errors, they'll have to strain harder to remember, though in many ways feel less successful because they'll be struggling to remember as opposed to remembering naturally, but it actually is more likely to transfer to, uh, to a game situation. I'm gonna call that- a, pra a practice where you see players being successful over and over again is in some ways a false positive, which is like, it feels really good and we feel like there's a lot of learning going on, but uh, we need their, you know, if players always know the always know that they're you know uh, the play is coming and they can prepare for it, that's much different from having to like read a situation and say, "Oh, now is the time to use my correct turn. Now is the time to build out of the back," and that they'll get some of those things wrong, but it will help them transfer to the game situation better. Two things jump to me on that. Number one, I, I, I'm going to make this up, but it's almost like the, the serial or the randomized practice is micro retrieval. <laughs> to yes. go back to what you talked about earlier is making them rethink and remember what it was that they learned previously at a, in a very, very small 
Can I just jump? I think that's exactly right, which is when you shift from one activity to another activity, you're simulating the passage of time, the process of forgetting over the passage of time because you're redirecting attention to a new task, right? So then players forget the previous task and it's like you get the benefits of time passing. Uh, the best time to remember something is when you've begun to forget it, you're just accelerating uh, the, the forgetting process, which I think is why it's it's so profoundly helpful. In, in so so that that is, again, underlying this incredibly powerful concept of retrieval practice that we talked about earlier. The second thing is, you know, back to that question of learners being aware of when they're learning. As you were talking, it, it also made me think back to the difference between performance and learning. And they might be very well aware that they're performing better. Right. And that that's almost like a false positive to your previous point is that they, they're aware of the performance changing, but what they don't know is that it's not going into long-term memory and they don't understand that difference between performance and learning. Which is so I think it's such an important point because what it's why we have to help players be comfortable with the idea of struggle, particularly elite athletes whose identity is built around their success, right? I'm a, I'm a top tier soccer player, right? And so when I struggle, I feel less like a top tier soccer player and so my, my goal is to put myself in environments where i'm performing better but not necessarily in environments where i'm learning better um as a small section in the book where i write about um about this exercise that i watched at uh, at the philadelphia union academy session where um the coach is asking players to play the ball first time with like a chop. So they, they play underneath the ball and it has backspin. So their, their first touch is across the body and has backspin to, uh, to play their player off to their side. And the players are almost refusing to do it, right? They're really elite players and they keep playing it with the side of their foot, which is a simpler play because they want to do what they're good at. And they're trying to avoid doing what they're bad at. To continue, they're trying to avoid doing what will cause them to learn to continue doing what they're already good at because that feels better. And so the coach's whole job here is to be like, I know you can do it with the side of your foot. I want to see you chop it. I want to see, I want to see the backspin, even if it's a bad pass. Like, so much of it is a psychological work of getting players comfortable with struggle uh, because that's, that's a critical part of going from performance to learning. Well, this has been an incredible discussion, Doug. I think we could go on and on and we might have to have you back again. Not because, you know, you screwed it up the first time, but because we could just keep going on. Well, this. I'm not ruling that out. <laughs> <laughs> but we really appreciate your, your time here in the discussion. I think this will be a really interesting discussion for coaches. And there, there's a lot of little nuggets in here. We may, we may have to break this down into some outline of this discussion too, because I think there was a lot of stuff buried in here. It's my pleasure. It was great, great chatting with you, and I look forward to doing it again soon. We all look forward to that. I want to thank Christian Lavers and Doug Lamav. We also want to thank Jen Winnicle, Jason Cutney, Doug Bracken, Andrea Wheeler, Jacob Bourne, all the great folks at the ECNL. For each and every one of them and all of you, as well as our producer, Colin Thrash, I'm Dean Linke saying we'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.